Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Linda Campbell. Welcome to HypnoBits. It is September 23rd, 2016, and I am coming to you from beautiful Victoria, B.C., Canada. Uh, I am a registered clinical counseling hypnotherapist and president of the Canadian Association of Counseling Hypnotherapists and Educators, or CASH. And HypnoBits is a show geared towards students and practitioners of hypnotherapy. Today we are going to discuss how to deal with kinks and fetishes using hypnotherapy. So before we really get into how we work through this with a client who wants to resolve a kink or a fetish or come to accept it, we need to look at how they are formed. And the best way to understand this is to look at conditioned response. Now, to sort of set the pace for this, I'm going to share with you a few case studies that I've seen in my practice. I had a client who came to see me who had an attraction to horses, another man who was fired from his job because of his upskirt fetish. He got caught taking video footage up the skirts of his coworkers and storing it on his computer. I had a man who wanted to be treated like a baby by his partners, right up to being diapered and nursed. And I had a man who would be aroused by fecal matter. So, again, to understand how fetishes are formed, let's look at another popular use of hypnosis. Let's look at phobias. Now, phobias are formed when a client is in an anxious state, and then that state somehow gets associated to the phobic item. It may or may not be the item that's causing the phobia, but if the person is in a highly aroused, intense emotional state, such as anxiety or fear, and that item is convenient or available or present, the mind can associate the two. So, for example, there is a story about a fellow who uh, developed a phobia of uh, phones because it was during the wartime and bombs were going off all over the place, and at the exact moment a bomb went off, he picked up a phone that was ringing, and his mind associated the fear that he was feeling because of the bombs going off with the sound of the phone and with the phone. So that from that point forward, the phone became a source of anxiety. So it's really important to recognize that the subconscious is all about protection. Its big job is self-preservation, and it's completely illogical. So when we are in a fearful state, it's going to look for something to blame for that fear because if I know what to blame, then I know what to avoid. So in that case, the phone wasn't the thing that was causing fear, but because the phone conveniently went off at the same time that a bomb did, the subconscious being illogical went, oh, all that fear must have been caused by the phone. Well, now I know to avoid the phone and we're going to be safe. I had another client who was going through a separation from his wife, and uh, he had decided to go away for a few days to give her time to clean her stuff out of the house. And while he was traveling by plane, he was in his head the whole time thinking about her leaving and what was it going to be like when he came home to their empty house and getting himself quite worked up about their uh, marriage ending. Gets out of the plane, he goes to rent a rental car, goes and drives out onto this four-lane highway and instantly has a panic attack. And from that point forward, he couldn't travel on four-lane or larger highways any longer. So he came to me because he thought he had developed a fear of driving. So he wanted to work through this fear of driving, phobia around driving. But it really wasn't a phobia around driving. What had happened, again, was he got himself so worked up into such a state of anxiety thinking about his relationship ending, and that was all that was going on in his mind through the entire flight, 
that when he got into a car, kind of looked up, his mind associated all of that fear that he had about his marriage ending with what he happened to see in front of him, which was the four-lane highway. So again, he didn't have a fear of highways, he didn't have a fear of driving, but the subconscious is looking for something convenient to blame so that it knows what it can avoid. So a phobia operates by association. In this case, when it comes to phobia, it's a state of anxiety or fear that gets associated with an item or a location. And so kinks and fetishes operate in very much the same way, except that instead of the aroused state, the highly emotional state being one of fear or anxiety, it's one of arousal. Or in some cases, it can be a state of being in love or feeling connected. Uh, That can be what gets associated to the fetish or to the kink. So in the case of the uh, people that I discussed earlier, I'm going to give you how their fetish was set up initially. So the fellow who found himself attracted to horses, Uh, when he was a kid, he would spend his summers away at his grandparents' farm. And uh, the year that he started going through puberty, he was masturbating like crazy, and he went to the grandparents' farm, and grandpa and grandma would leave and go into town for the day. And so he was masturbating and looking out his bedroom window to watch for them coming home because he didn't want to get caught. And out of the corner of his eye, there were horses running by. And so all that happened was he's in this highly aroused state, probably a combination of sexual arousal plus anxiety about being caught and what he out of the corner of his eye got associated with this state. So he was quite distressed when he came to see me because he thought he was some kind of pervert or something because he was attracted to horses and uh, was looking at pictures of horses online, just like people would look at porn as a way of getting aroused, and was really disturbed that there must be something mentally wrong with him. And I'm always fascinated by the way the brain works. There's nothing wrong with somebody who has an, an interesting arousal. A lot of people are turned on by a variety of different things. All you need to do is go and look at different porn sites and you can see that there's different strokes for different folks, so to speak. And I think in most cases, if we could get inside somebody's head and look at how that was established, how it was initially set up, you would see the same conditioned response over and over and over. The person being in a state of arousal and there being something conveniently close by or something that you know is involved in whatever they're doing at the time that just gets linked to that state of arousal. So in this case, this guy wasn't some kind of twisted freak or something. He just saw a horse out of the corner of his eye when he was in a state of arousal. Now, I mentioned earlier that that highly aroused state may be one of love or connection, and that was the case with the fellow with the upskirt fetish. So when we trace back where his fetish had come from, what he recalled was being very young, maybe two or three, he was still a toddler at the time, and his mother would have what was equivalent in his town and in that day uh, to the Avon lady come over. So she'd have a bunch of her girlfriends and this one woman who would bring perfumes and makeup and that sort of thing. And all of his mother's friends would make a big deal about him. They'd all hug him and kiss him and pinch his cheeks. And then he would sit on the table, on the table, under the table with some toys while they all put on makeup and did their hair and their nails and that sort of thing. And he basically associated the view that he had under the table of the women's legs and shoes and skirts with all of this love and connection that he felt when these women would come over and spend time with his mom and the Avon lady. So it was actually, when you think about it, a really sweet story. Now, here's a guy who got fired from his job because he had this overwhelming compulsion 
to take upskirt videos. He actually had a little camera designed that he could put at an angle with a little mirror and all of this, you know, whole gadget he came up with so that he could take pictures up women's skirts without them being aware that he was doing it. And he got busted with some of this content on his work computer and, of course, got fired from work. So he came in because he was actually mandated in order to go back to work to do counseling and to resolve this. And, you know, again, feeling terrible about himself, like realizing that he had violated people's privacy and was potentially losing a job because of this issue he had. But when we trace back what was responsible for the issue, when you think about it, it's actually a really sweet, lovely story. It's this little boy who just felt all this love and acceptance from women, and that feeling of love, that highly aroused state, got attached to the view. Now, the fellow who was uh, wanted to be treated like a baby, again, it was you know, kind of a sad story when we trace back where it originated from. He recalled having his mom be very attentive and very loving and very caring towards him when he was a baby, when he was in diapers. And then again, when he reached two or three years old, another baby came along and all of a sudden that baby got all of of the mother's focus and he wasn't getting any of mom's love or attention anymore. So in his mind, he had associated when, you know, when you're a baby, if I were a baby, that I'm going to get the love that I want, that I'm going to get the attention I want. Now, again, the subconscious is illogical. So once a belief or a thought like that gets imprinted into the subconscious, it just stays there. Uh, The subconscious doesn't look through the beliefs that we pick up over the course of our lives and say, well, that one's kind of silly, or that one may have made sense then, but it doesn't make sense now. Once a belief gets picked up, it just stays. So even though this person came to see me as an adult and was able to connect with women and feel a sense of love, again, he just had this desire to be like a baby, to be nurtured, to be taken care of, to get that attention the way he did when he was really really little. Now, the fellow who had the, um, who got aroused by fecal matter, this story was kind of tragic, actually. So his mother was not terribly stable. And when he was a baby and she would be cleaning him and diapering him, she would actually arouse him with her fingers. And he associated the pleasure of being aroused with the smell and the sensation of fecal matter because it would only ever happen when she was changing his diaper. So again, you know, there's something inside a person that says, wow, I really like the feeling of connection. I really like the love. I really like the pleasure. I really like the sensation. And it must be the whatever, the horse, the fecal matter, the being in diapers, the the view from up the skirt, that's responsible for it. So I'm drawn towards that thing. So in psychology, we know this as a conditioned response. So you probably are familiar with Pavlov's dog. So Pavlov was researching the salivation of dogs, and he would notice that, of course, the dogs would salivate when they were given meat powder. But after a while, he began to notice that not only would they salivate when they were given meat powder, but they would also salivate when they saw the lab coat that the lab assistant who brought the meat powder in wore. So Pavlov thought this was very interesting, that it wasn't just the meat powder that was making the dog salivate but just seeing the lab coat and so he set up an experiment that every time the dogs were fed he would sound a tone and eventually of course we all know how this story ends eventually the dogs would salivate when the tone was sounded even if there was no food available so 
we, again, know this as a conditioned response. The food represented an unconditioned response, meaning that the food triggered an automatic natural response. There was no conditioning involved. It's normal and natural for a person, or in this case a dog, to salivate when food is presented. A conditioned response is when you can set up a particular type of response by conditioning the person, or in this case the dog. So the tone created a conditioned response. It was a conditioned stimulus that led the dog to respond in a particular way. So all that's happening with fears and phobias and with kinks and fetishes is that a conditioned response is being set up with a conditioned stimulus. So how can we help this? How can we work through fetishes and kinks with somebody in hypnosis? Now, the first thing is in the 16, 17 years now that I've been doing hypnosis, I've only really run into a handful of people who were coming to work on it. They may not necessarily come to see us because they're not disturbed by their behavior. Again, people are drawn to a lot of different things to get their sexual arousal, and they tend to like sex. They tend to like what arouses them, and so they're not necessarily in any form of distress that would cause them to seek out some kind of help or some kind of support. So people may not even come to see us for this particular goal unless they were really disturbed by their behavior. And if they do come, sometimes it's a matter of looking at how much distress the behavior causes and why. So the man who had the upskirt fetish lost a job because he was taking pictures of women at work, and that was found on his computer. So he was really disturbed by being caught. However, He was not disturbed by the fetish itself. Had he never been caught and been forced into doing some kind of therapy around this, he would have just carried on with his fetish. So the real question becomes, is the goal to eliminate the fetish or is the goal to help the client to accept the fetish, have it understood and normalized by the client instead of stigmatized, and help the client to find an outlet for their sexual expression that doesn't cause harm or distress to themselves or others? So in the case of the fellow who had the upskirt fetish, he didn't really want to get rid of his fetish. He was coming to see me under duress. <laughs> so people who are coming to see me for phobias really want to get rid of their phobia because you know they can't leave their house because they're afraid they're going to run into a spider or a garter snake or you know the phobia is such that it's causing distress in their lives. The difference with kinks and fetishes is it's causing pleasure in their lives, and so they're generally not seeking some kind of help for getting rid of the thing that causes them pleasure. So in the case of the fellow with the upskirt fetish, we weren't going to eliminate his fetish. However, there was work that we could do around helping him to have the self-control and willpower to not act on his fetish in environments where it wouldn't be appropriate. And, of course, in his case, there were a lot of different outlets that he could go to that would be perfectly um, acceptable as far as him exploring and enjoying his particular fetish. So again, I want to repeat this because I think this is a really, really important point. The goal may not be necessarily to eliminate the fetish. The goal may be to help the client to accept the fetish, to have it understood and normalized by the client instead of having it stigmatized, and to help the client find an outlet for their sexual expression that doesn't cause harm or distress to themselves or others. So the man who wanted to be treated like a baby wanted to eliminate his fetish because it affected his relationships negatively. Uh, There was a point uh, at which 
not only did he want his sexual connection with his partner to be that where they were nurturing him and in a parenting role and he was in the baby role, but it started trickling over into other areas of his life where he actually wanted somebody to just take care of him. Uh, He didn't want to have to work. He didn't want to have to make his own meals. He didn't want to have to dress himself. He was really looking for a partner who was going to take on a parenting role so that he could be in a baby role. So his his fetish had kind of spread out and become sort of all-encompassing. It wasn't just what he was doing in the bedroom, but what he was doing in his life. And it was making it really difficult for him to sustain any kind of relationship. He wasn't able to find a partner who was willing to, you know, have sex with and take care of a grown man as though that person were a baby. So he was realizing that his choice of partners was very limited and his desire to be in a partnership outweighed his desire to have that partner play this particular role. So in his particular case, we were working on eliminating that fetish altogether. The man who was attracted to horses wanted to eliminate it because there was no real outlet for him. Now, he was able to find porn that he could use to gratify himself. Uh, However, he wanted to be able to enjoy normal sexual experiences and be attracted to women. He still had attraction for women, um, but this was just something he felt was a little weird and off-putting, and again, he didn't have a whole lot of outlets. The man who was into fecal matter, uh, we worked on normalizing it, accepting it, and looking at sexual practices that would allow him to be aroused because, fortunately for him, there are certain sexual activities where nobody would have to know that he had this strange fetish um, where he could actually enjoy what aroused him without anybody necessarily even having to know. So. It was just a matter of putting it right in his head. He felt guilty that this was something that he took pleasure in, uh, was disgusted by himself, was uncomfortable sharing this with partners. Uh, so a lot of the work we were doing was not on changing his fetish, but on changing, changing his own personal mindset about it. The fellow with the upskirt fetish, again, we kept it, but we worked on having self-control so that he wouldn't bring it into the workplace. And so... You need to look at the client's particular goal. What are their desires? Just because somebody comes in with a fetish doesn't necessarily mean they want to get rid of it. It may be a matter of being comfortable with expressing your sexuality in whatever way you like. It may be a matter of being able to express to the people you care about or the people who are your partners uh, what your sexual preferences and desires are. It may be about just understanding that uh, how that association is set up so that people can be more accepting of themselves. Sometimes what bothers people most is that they have something that they think is perverted or strange or unusual. They think that they're the only ones. And so, again, it's about normalizing it. Oftentimes, just doing the consultation with these people and explaining to them, here is how the mind works. When things happen in close proximity to one another, the mind assumes that they're connected. When somebody's in a highly roused state and there's something there that the mind latches onto and blames for the arousal, boom, there you have a fetish. So, In the case of normalizing and accepting the fetish, there's a lot we can do to help the client to understand the condition response. That in and of itself can be beneficial. You can also, in hypnosis, do hypnotic argument around people having different needs and different sexual desire and different preferences and tastes and biases when it comes to sexuality, again, to help normalize it. Sometimes people think that they're the only ones who have this odd thing going on. But in fact, all you have to do, again, is get out there onto some porn sites or into fetish sites or kink sites, and there's all kinds of different things that people are aroused by. And oftentimes the client who does a little bit of exploring like that or is told in hypnosis that that's 
fairly normal, fairly common, fairly typical, um, that in and of itself helps to release a lot of their distress, their anxiety. Now, in the case of getting rid of a fetish, there are different things that we can do. So we want to reassociate the response of arousal to scenarios or imagery or situations that the client would prefer to be aroused by. So right now I'm aroused by Y, but I would like to be aroused by X. So sometimes the work I do here is to have them symbolically attach their arousal to the thing that they would prefer to be aroused by, detaching it from the thing they're currently aroused by. So in the case of the man who was aroused by horses, I had him find a way to symbolically imagine his arousal being attached to horses and then withdraw it and attach it to his image of, you know, whatever he desired to be aroused by. So, again, the subconscious is the creative mind. It understands symbolism. So even though this may seem, you know, highly symbolic and not very, uh, you know, (laughs) methodical as far as here's the particular strategy, have them imagine this, then have them do that, it's really up to the client to come up with their own way of symbolizing their their attraction and, removing it from the thing that they're currently attracted to and attaching it to something else. You can also set up a new response. So you could have the client enter into an aroused state or give them suggestions to be able to do this on their own in case you're not comfortable with them doing this in your office. And then you have them bring up the imagery of what they would prefer to be attracted to while in that aroused state. So again, you're setting up another conditioned response. When they're in this state and they think about or imagine what it is they would like to be aroused by, that state of arousal that they're currently experiencing gets associated to whatever they're imagining. Now, if you're familiar with submodality work, you could also use submodalities to work on fetishes. So, for example, you would have the person imagine while they're in hypnosis inside their mind the thing that they are actually aroused by. So let's pick the guy who's aroused by horses. And I would have them imagine an image that represents that in their mind. So as though they had a picture with the caption underneath, I'm aroused by horses, what would that picture be? And I would get them to describe certain aspects of that picture. Is it large or small? Is it right up in front of you or is it farther away? Is it in color? Is it black and white? It, you know, What is it about the color? Are they bright colors? Are they pastels? Are they muted? sepia tones, that sort of thing. Uh, Are there any sounds? Is it a moving picture or is it still? Um, Is it panoramic or is it one frame? So I would get them to, I'd ask them a series of questions to get a real sense of how they um, position that particular picture, what it looks like within their mind. Then I would have them create a picture of the thing they would prefer to be aroused by. So I would prefer to be aroused by women than horses. So I'd have them picture women in their minds. And then I would have them tweak the modalities or the aspects of that particular picture to make it more similar to the picture of horses. So, for example, if the picture of horses was really big and bold and colorful, it took up the entire space inside their minds, it was quite close up, it was a moving picture, it was panoramic, I would want them to create the picture of women to look exactly the same way. So it should be big and bold, it should be up close, it should be moving, it should be panoramic. So I want to again, make the picture similar because what this does within the mind kind of tricks the mind to respond to the second picture, the picture of women, the same way that they respond to the picture of horses. So you can use submodalities, you can use symbolism, having them detach their arousal from one thing and attaching it to another. You could set up a new response, getting them into an aroused state and have them bring in imagery into their minds. You could do hypnotic argument. 
So again, there's a lot of different things for getting rid of a fetish, but most of the work that I've done in this area has been around helping people to feel comfortable and to be accepting of whatever their kink or desire is. So I hope that's given you some ideas as to things that you could do with somebody who is distressed by a fetish that they have, how you can support them through it. And uh, next week, I'm going to be delivering a bit of a rant, something I feel very passionate about. It's around charging for your services. So just a little bit of a heads up. I teach hypnotherapy. I run a hypnotherapy association. And so oftentimes, from people who are new in the business, I hear things like, well, I'm just starting out, so I'm going to go really cheap right off the bat. I'm just going to, like give it away for free pretty much or not charge very much. And I really, really warn against doing that for a lot of reasons. It can be the death of your practice. Actually, it's that serious uh, to not sell for your services or to try to be um, competitive by making your services cheap. So please tune in next week. That'll be the 30th of September, 2.30 to 3.00. You can also find these episodes on iTunes, and you can find them on the CASH website. That's CASH, C-A-C-H-E, Canada.com. All right, take care, and thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.